As we've mentioned, this is the second Sunday of Advent, one of my favorite seasons of the year, a period in the church calendar where we remember the first coming of Jesus as a baby and look forward with anticipation to his promised second coming. Advent is marked by remembering the waiting and longing of God's people throughout time and God's call to us even now to keep watch, to prepare our hearts and to wait with expectation for his return. Our Advent sermon series is titled Songs of Christmas, and last week we heard about the appearance of an angel to Mary, the young, unmarried woman who was chosen to give birth to Jesus. Gabriel told Mary that though she was a virgin, she would conceive and bear a son who would be a king with an everlasting kingdom. Devin spoke about her response of acceptance and trust in God's choosing of her for this honored role, even though it would bring public questioning and some seriously challenging conversations with her fiancé. This week, we will talk about the story of Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth, whose story bookends that of Mary in Luke chapter 1. In keeping with the Advent themes, this story is about hope and fulfillment, but first, it's a story about longing and disappointment and the struggle to maintain hope when there's little tangible reason to believe that anything could change. Perhaps you can relate. Maybe you too have a story of waiting a whole lifetime for your deepest longing and seeing no sign of an answer. Maybe it's even very close to this one, the waiting and longing for a child, or the waiting and longing for meaningful and productive work, or change in relationship, or a change in community, maybe even a change in the church. Some of you may have come today in the midst of the commercial push for cheerful and merry with a heavy heart because you're living with the recent death of a loved one, or the very personal effects of sin and evil bearing the gaping wound of broken relationships, betrayals, grief over wayward children, a body deteriorating with increasing limits. Perhaps you battle chronic pain or find yourself with a sense of stuckness in your life circumstances or simply a deep and aching awareness of our world's brokenness. Our hope and joy are frequently challenged by the truly bleak circumstances of our world. We're racked by daily reports of violence, greed, hatred, and ever-ending illness. And whether it's scenes of starving children in Haiti, Afghanistan, or Yemen, or the brutal and senseless war of Ukraine, we don't need to think long to bring up reasons for a lack of hope. And Zechariah's situation wasn't altogether different. Reading from Luke 1, chapter, uh, chapter 1, and verses 5 to 7, Luke writes, in the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. We learn that they had good lineage, good character, strong faith, and that they were in right standing with God. You could hardly have a better introduction in the Bible. Even so, they had a big problem, that of childlessness, a problem that in their day, and to a lesser degree even in ours, brings shame upon them. 
Childlessness would have caused others to question their faithfulness. Since children are blessings from God, if someone lacked children, then they were suspected of being out of good standing with God. A question which Luke's shining introduction of the couple puts to rest for us. And in that day, infertility also led to very practical problems, as children were a security, a social safety net to handle care in old age or in disease. But despite a faithful life and blameless ways, over years of waiting, God had still not answered the prayer of Zechariah and Elizabeth for a child. This journey of infertility is one I know very well and personally. So it is easy for me to imagine how Zechariah and Elizabeth might have watched years and decades pass with alternating waves of patient waiting and then grief, bouts of hope, consistent and persistent prayer, times of contentment, yet more grief, and eventually resignation as Elizabeth passed through her childbearing years. By the time we meet them in Luke 1, by all accounts, it seemed too late to hope for a child as they were, quote, very old. Two more things we should notice, though, from Luke's introduction before we carry on. It starts in the time of Herod, king of Judea, which reminds us that Zechariah lived in a world which was dominated by the oppressive colonial rule of Rome and the paranoid, power-hungry, and vicious leadership of Herod the Great. These heavy-handed rulers follow on from a long and complex line of occupying powers and infighting that had dominated the region for hundreds of years since the painful and grievous exile of the people of Israel. Things were not good for Jews in the days of Zechariah, and they hadn't been in a long time. But we also learn that Zechariah was a faithful priest, a man of ritual and prayer, a lifelong student of the Jewish Bible. This meant that Zechariah, like many other faithful people around him, was waiting and praying for the promised Messiah who would someday come to restore Israel. Remember with me for just a moment the arc of the story that brings us here, because without that backdrop, the intensity and beauty of today's passage really um, is hard to appreciate. It begins back as early as Genesis 3, as the ripples of sin and evil rush into creation, God promised that not all hope was lost, and though it looked like it was, that yet would come one of Adam and Eve's offspring who would rise up to eventually crush the head of the snake that had deceived them. Several chapters later, we meet um, from the generations born to Adam and Eve, Abram, who God set aside for a special covenant promise, telling Abram that he would have a big family with descendants too many to count, who he would be a blessing to the nations and take possession of this fruitful land. But there was a problem. Like Zechariah and Elizabeth, Abram and his wife Sarai were childless and too old to have any hope of a child. But God is faithful to his promises and not deterred by human obstacle. He miraculously provides for Abraham, who eventually has a grandson named Judah, who receives a promise from, that one of his descendants would become a king who would rule forever. Which brings us to King David from the line of Judah, who seems really, really great until he isn't. He gives in to sin and he fails to lead faithfully like the people before him. He leads the nation of Israel um, still looking for a just and merciful king who could overcome the evil of that snake. Years pass, the kings that follow David get worse and worse and worse. 
until the nation of Israel self-destructs and is carried off into exile by strong empires around them, leaving no king at all. Like for Zechariah and Elizabeth's hope for a child, Israel's hope for a king who could rule justly and overcome evil looks as good as dead. But the prophets who spoke on behalf of God leading up to and during the exile kept promising that despite Israel's unfaithfulness and apparent destruction, the promised Messiah would yet come to bring peace and justice. The prophecies are many and woven throughout the Old Testament, but this is where we get commonly cited Christmas passages like our very familiar Isaiah 9. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. For to us a child is born, and to us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. And the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. This promise sounds amazing. Yet years and centuries and generations passed by, and though some Jews were able to return to the land, things were still not okay when we meet Zechariah in Luke 1. There remained no tangible sign of God's impending rescue. Surely some in that day had given up or forgotten the promises of the rescuer Messiah King, but faithful Israelites like Zechariah and Elizabeth continued to watch and wait. And I imagine that even for someone like Zechariah, holding on to hope when there was no tangible evidence of change would be very hard. Can you relate? Zechariah could have easily sung with us the lines of O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, which reference the captivity of Israel and that we also face now to the brokenness and evil of our world and our own hearts. As the story continues in Luke 1, though, however, we hear about the day that everything changed for Zechariah. It was a significant day already. Zechariah had been chosen to be the one priest to enter the temple to burn the incense, an honor that would likely have only happened once in his whole lifetime of service. And it's in this special moment that an angel appears. It reads, Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zechariah saw him, he was startled and gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. Zechariah is clearly shocked, both by the angel's presence and then by the news of his impending and too-late-to-believe move into fatherhood. And as amazing and miraculous as the arrival of a son might be, there's more. The angel continues, He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children 
and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah's son was a child of promise, set apart from conception to prepare people for the coming of the Lord by calling them back to right relationship with and obedience to God and right relationship with one another. The angel's words contain an allusion to Malachi 4 in the Old Testament, where we learn that before God returns to judge evil and put all things right, he would send a messenger of mercy to plead with the people to repent and return to himself. Zechariah would know this prophecy well, and this announcement about his son's significance would mean that the long-awaited Messiah would not be far behind. Like God's miraculous rescue of his people from Egypt at the Exodus, God was breaking in to Israel's story once again with a supernatural rescue plan. God breaks in to answer the community's longing and prayer and Zechariah's very personal prayer for a child in one amazing move. But startled Zechariah questions Gabriel's message, asking, how can I be sure of this? I mean, on one hand, you can't blame him. It is all a little bit much to believe, and perhaps especially for a man who's been accustomed to waiting his whole life long without any answers. But as a consequence of his failure to believe the angel's message, Zechariah was told he'd be unable to speak until his son was born. And when the time came for the new baby to be named, Zechariah and Elizabeth insisted on naming him John. Despite their neighbor's confusion, it wasn't a name keeping with the family tradition and custom. And this act of obedience to the angel's instruction was the moment that Zechariah regained his voice, and boy did he. Luke reports immediately his mouth was opened and tongue set free, and he began to speak praising God. And while the neighbors didn't have the advantage of hearing the angel's announcement personally, they knew that the birth was clearly something very unusual. It had all the neighbors talking. They were filled with awe, Luke reports, and wondering, what then is this child going to be? Zechariah breaks out in praise, prompted by the Holy Spirit, as we read in verses 68 to 79. Let's look at that together. He begins, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said through his holy prophets of long ago. Salvation from our enemies, from the hands of all who hate us, to show mercy to our ancestors and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham to rescue us from the hands of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Zechariah understands that the significance of the arrival of his son was more than a wonderful resolution to the public disgrace of childlessness. So Zechariah begins his song of praise not with a focus on his own son, but a focus on the coming Messiah King. There are so many Old Testament references and allusions here. There's way too many to list or get into today. But I would like you to notice just a few key words that are here. That of redeemed or rescued or delivered. The reference to the horn of salvation, which in the Old Testament represented strength and often referred to a king. The house of David, the references to the covenant, oath, and promise made with Abraham. Zechariah knew 
that the biggest news he carried was the arrival of the centuries and millennia long promised, coming promised rescuer redeemer. Just as he said, God would finally send someone from the line of Abraham, and more specifically through the family of David, to be that king that Israel had always needed. The king from the line of David who would fulfill the promises of Isaiah 9 to rule forever as the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, and prince of peace. Zechariah briefly includes praise for the arrival of his son John and the honored but difficult calling that John had been given to prepare the way for the Lord by calling people to repentance. Zechariah says, and you, my child, will be a prophet of the Most High, and you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. But he ends again with praise for God's tender mercy in sending a Messiah who would shine light on those living in darkness and the shadow of death. Zechariah borrows here from the language of Isaiah 9. The implications of this reign of the Savior King would be wide-ranging, everything-changing, true shalom-bringing, as captured in the verses between those famous bits of Isaiah 9, the parts that the Christmas cards tend to skip. Let me read it again. <laughs> the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice in the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, and every warrior's boot used in battle. And every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning. Can I hear an amen? Be fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. This king would bring release from cruel leadership and bring an end to violence on earth. Notice, even in Zechariah's song, he expects this Messiah to bring release from enemies, from fears, and forgiveness of sins. For this hope to be realized is worth overflowing joy, as in the day of collecting harvest for hungry people, to borrow Isaiah's imagery. But let's zoom back out for just a moment to the scope of Luke 1, which starts with Gabriel visiting Zechariah, cuts scene to introduce Mary and the announcement of joy she receives, and ends again with John's birth and Zechariah's song. What do these two people, Mary and Zechariah, who are clearly put up against one another as parallels, what do they have in common? Both are said to be honorable people. Both are startled or troubled by the visit of Gabriel. Both were given very surprising news of truly miraculous births, which would fulfill prophecies the nation of Israel had long, long to see fulfilled. It, by way of contrast, one is a young unmarried woman, likely a teenager, the other an old man with a respected position as priest. And this contrast only makes sharper the contrast of Mary and Zechariah in the response to God's miraculous arrival. 
Mary asks questions of logistics. Um, how will this work exactly? And Zechariah asks how he could possibly believe the news, but how can I be sure of this? And as a result, he gets a nine-month timeout to reflect on his posture. Yet, despite Zechariah's skepticism, Elizabeth still gets pregnant, and John is stillborn, just as the angel said. This, my friends, is the beauty of Zechariah's story. God heard Zechariah's prayer, both a prayer for the child and a prayer for the Messiah. The child was a small yes by comparison to the promised arrival of the Savior to Israel, but the old age birth of a child was a tangible sign that God was both able and faithful to do what he said. Even in the nation of Israel's and Zechariah's less than full of faith waiting, God remained faithful in his coming. This is one of the echoing themes between both Mary and Zechariah's songs. God is full of mercy and faithful to his promises. And this is true for us today, too. God is full of mercy, and he is faithful to his people and to his promises. Waiting is hard, especially if we rely on what our eyes see or how the news reads. There's certainly a lot of fodder for skepticism, disappointment, and doubt. In years of repeated disappointment, an apparent silence from God can leave us open to cynicism and resignation. Chronic disappointment in one area, like Zechariah and Elizabeth's childlessness, can lead us to cynicism about God's action on a bigger scale, too. Waiting is hard in part because we often have very specific dreams and expectations or desires for how God might meet our prayer and our need. And while God welcomes truly our very personal prayers and often delights to show himself to us in detailed and intimate answers to our heart's desires, sometimes the answer doesn't come. Or the answer at least seems like a big, long, not yet. So even as our persistent prayers of longing rise before God like the incense that Zechariah was offering, we can take comfort in knowing we're not alone in times of confusion or wondering if God really hears our prayer. Even when God chooses not to intervene in our circumstances, he is compassionate and gracious and present with us in our longing and in our grief. Zechariah's story reminds us that God's sending of the Messiah came at a much different speed and in a much different way than Zechariah and others may have expected. However, he was faithful to his promises all the way back to Abraham. So sometimes we're stuck in disappointment because we're imagining and maybe even demanding that God answer our deepest longings in the time and in the way that seems good to us. But we do have to acknowledge that there are many childless couples in Zechariah's time and in ours who never received that promised, longed-for child. Many pleas for healing that fall on deaf ears. Many faithful requests for rescue that go unanswered. I mean, I'm glad some people get their miracle, but how do you hold on to hope when that's not your story? Zechariah is a good model here, too. While he prayed for a son, undoubtedly many times through tears, his trust in God did not rise and fall on the apparent no they had received when Elizabeth passed through those childbearing years. 
This is because Zechariah's ultimate hope was not in a change of circumstance, however much he longed for that, but his hope was in a person. And friends, this is key for us too. Christian hope hangs on a who, not a what. A person, not a change of circumstance. And this kind of hope is well-placed. We hope in the God who sees and hears our most raw prayer. He is a trustworthy person who does see, who will come, though almost assuredly not at the pace or in the way that you or I imagine. Our hope is in God, revealed to us in Jesus, whose name is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, and who in the book of Revelation is also called Faithful and True. Our hope is in God, who is merciful and faithful to his promises. But what does God promise? I want to leave you with two things to hold on to when all hope seems lost, when everything else is dark. God promises to be with us, God with us, Emmanuel, now and forever, even in our darkest days. We can see it in his words, for example, in Matthew 28, where he says, surely I'm with you always, even to the very end of the age. And in Hebrews 13, quoting back to Deuteronomy, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. But we see it also in the whole storyline of scripture. God's persistent and insistent pursuit of relationship and nearness to his people, even to the point of taking on flesh to walk among us. Friends, God is near. Jesus, faithful and true, also promises that a day is coming when he will return again to complete his redemption project. And at that time, we will see ultimate healing and restoration of ourselves and the whole creation from sin and death. I'd like to remind you of that promise this morning. I invite you, if you're comfortable, to close your eyes and just hear the words of truth read to you. From 1 Corinthians 15, But Christ, who indeed has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, for since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ, the first fruits, and then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come, when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet, and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Or from Romans 8, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. We know that the whole creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth, right up to this present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we eagerly await our adoption to sonship and the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. 
we rest in these promises today. That the God who showed up in the temple that day for Zechariah shows up again, and even now here with us. He is faithful and true. He is merciful to his people and faithful to do what he said. Uh, this week I had a colleague who wrote a poem um, and I asked her permission to share a piece of it with you because it matched so well. Her name is Shanna and uh, she works in Colorado with our mission organization. And she wrote this, hope, not in an outcome or a vision, an image or an ideal, hope in the presence in the indwelling of the God of love and justice who will not break the bent reed or smother the smoldering wick. The one who brings about justice for the oppressed who lifts the head and crowns it with mercy. Hope, rather in a person, dwelling with, in a God dwelling among, hope, not in an outcome, but in the one who started and will finish this journey with me with us. O come, O come, Emmanuel. Let's pray. God, we hang our hope on you again today, remembering the story of your faithful appearing to your people in so many ways through time and especially through the birth of your son, Jesus. We look forward with deep longing and expectation to the day when he will come again to set all things right. Would you help us to be faithful in our waiting, to remain with hearts open and soft, believing that you are faithful and true. For the places where cynicism and doubt have crept in, Father, we beg for healing. We ask for mercy and we praise you because you are the merciful one. Be with us in our waiting, rekindle our hope, help us to put our trust fully in you again today. Amen. <laughs>